Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, February 26th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So if you saw Rickles, Don Rickles, before he died, which is, hey, the best time to catch him. He was at his prime then, before he was dead. But... B, you're going to want to see him call someone a hockey puck. I saw him live at the Sands. I was waiting for him to call someone a hockey puck. Called someone a hockey puck. I'm like, I got the Rickles effect. If you go to see Sticks, they can rock the paradise on their own time. You want to see Come Sail Away. Even on the Mr. Roboto tour, they got to play some Come Sail Away. And that's like the attendees of the CPAC conference gathered to watch Donald Trump. They were frothing at the mouth for his greatest hits. Well, they were frothing at the mouth for the hide of the apostates and a return to 19th century demographics and suffrage laws. Sure, sure, all true. What they really wanted was the stuff that he did on the campaign trail that enthralled them in the first place. They wanted the snake. A snake, oh, snake, right? That was actually Trump a few months ago. That was part of his Donald Trump tells audiences what to think of animals. Snake, ooh, lemur. Nobody talks about lemur. The mockingbird, no, you're the mockingbird. But the point is Trump has been doing the snake, (laughs) dance craze, reciting this poem, The Snake, for a while now, and he busted it out again at CPAC, helpfully providing the context that this is a poem about the dangers of immigration. Immigration. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor, half-hearted, frozen snake. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Poor thing, she cried. I'll take you in, and I'll take care of you. Take me in, O tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, O tender woman, sighed the vicious snake. Now, I am a student of the snake, the poem, the snake, not the reciter of the poem. And I noticed some changes over time in Trump's delivery. When he first began reciting the snake over a year ago, it wasn't the vicious snake. In the original poem, which is actually song lyrics, there is no adjective before the snake in that part of the poem, but he added a different word other than vicious. And he also changed another word. Listen to how 
or what he describes as silken. This is from an earlier recitation of the snake. Take me in, O tender woman, sighed the broken snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a curvature of silk. It was a broken snake, and it was a curvature of silk. Well, for anyone who says Trump just stumbled into his communication success, no, he changed those words to suit his audience. He realized that broken, the broken snake, has two meanings, and perhaps both are a little too subtle. So he went with vicious. And of course, the curvature of silk. I mean, come on, curvature. That's not really a MAGA hat word, is it? So here's what it has become in the CPAC recitation and more recent iterations. Take me in, O tender woman, sighed the vicious snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a comforter of silk. A vicious snake wrapped in a comforter of silk. And that is how he said it at CPAC 2. Now, the original poem, like I said, it wasn't a poem at all. It was uh, sung by Al Wilson, the great soul singer. It was written by civil rights activist Oscar Brown in 1963. Well, needless to say, Oscar Brown's children are upset by Trump's use of the snake. His daughters say of Trump's using their father's lyrics. This is uh, one daughter, Africa Pace Brown, said, quote, The snake was basically written to outline something like what Trump is doing. It's actually amazing to me because I know my father would have said, it's about Trump. Well, it turns out that this is just another example of Donald Trump not caring about what Africa has to say. And it won't be the last. On the show today, an election with few consequences that you probably hadn't heard of. But it got me to thinking, you won't want to miss a terribly relevant spiel. But first, thinking about thinking, we've been pretty good at thinking for the last couple hundred years since the age of enlightenment. The charts show a lot of progress. And Steven Pinker makes the argument, which is dear to my heart, that things really are improving. But since Dr. Pinker is a psychologist and a linguist, I take his optimistic assessment, and I go in different directions. Who knows? Enlightenment now. Enlightenment now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In Steven Pinker's last book, Better Angels of Our Nature, the Harvard psychology professor spilled much ink on how much blood has been spilt over the years. It's less than we might think. So he dug deeper for his new work. He dug through the troughs of the horsemen adjacent to war, pestilence, famine, plague, and what he found does not hew to popular belief. As a society, perhaps as a species, we have long dwelt on the negative, but the news is mostly positive. 
It's all there in the new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Professor Steven Pinker, welcome. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Do you see what I did in the intro? I tried to include as many irregular verbs as possible. Much appreciated. Because I know that's your specialty. My favorite words in the language. You made your, did you make your name on that? It was my obsession for a big chunk of my career, the yeah. psychology of regular and irregular verbs as a way of getting at the interaction between computation and memory in language and more generally in cognition. So what I want to do is uh, talk about some of the context and implications for your arguments. But what I like to do first is just lay out some facts. There's, I don't know, 75 or so graphs in here, and each could be an amazing fact that might blow your mind if your mind is uh, able to be blown. Why don't you tell me one of these advances of civilization that we might not realize. You tell me one of your favorites, and then I'll tell you one of my favorites from your book. Well, you got to begin with life itself. Yeah. And through most of human history, a newborn could be expected to live only about 30 years. Now, life expectancy in the developed world is greater than 80 years. Life expectancy in the world as a whole is 71. And we know from surveys, no one guesses that it's that high. Right. A few people appreciate that uh, in as recently as the 18th century in Western Europe, about a third of babies died before they, their fifth birthday. Now that has uh, plummeted, certainly in the developed world, but crucially, all of the figures of human well-being uh, that we enjoy in the West are spreading globally. And so sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, they are replicating the escape from universal poverty and misery and early death that uh, Europe had to go through. I'm going to come back to early death, but I'll just tell you what I think my favorite stat in the book was. The amount of laundry we do a day (laughs) Right? It used to be 11 and a half hours a week. Now it's one and a half hours. That's right. There used to be this concept of wash day. Yeah. You would forfeit one day a week. Now, and when I say you, that's mainly women. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it's not you and me literally in, in, in practice. But yeah, thanks to the washing machine, an entire day a week has been returned to our lives. We and never credit that. We never credit that. And needless to say, housework is the least favorite way that people say they spend their time. Right. And so it, it truly is a gift and it isn't just laundry, but also cooking and peeling and churning and uh, and darning and all, all the ways in which our grandmothers and great-grandmothers yeah. spent their, their time. People don't spend any time on it anymore. Now we have more phrases. We spend more time investing in phrases associated with laundry, like darn and airing your dirty laundry, than we do actually doing laundry. <laughs> right. We'll send it That's through the of, rinse cycle, see how it comes out. It's a kind of progress. My other favorite thing is the cost uh, of lumens. Just if you wanted to light, have light in the Middle Ages to now, it's so much easier. It's astronomically easier. Well, it used to be that that a tallow candle was a luxury, and and most people would have to do without. You wouldn't want to forfeit a bunch of your rent check. You have to take your monastic vows to have easy access to one. Yeah, right. (laughs) And uh, and, and it's continuing to get cheaper, even when that graph uh, by um, uh, Nordhaus was published. That was before uh, cheap uh, LEDs were widely available. The fact is, I mean, this is what your whole book is about. The fact is that as humans, well, since the Enlightenment, things have improved. We've made things improved. We've orchestrated an improvement of things. That's right. And that, of course, is the major theme of the book. Not only that progress has taken place, but that we can credit particular ideas that, that made it take place. It's not just it's not some magical arc of improvement or dialectic or mysterious process that carries us ever upward. Yeah. Uh, it's people in the past identified problems. They tried to solve them. Uh, every once in a while, they succeeded. We kept the, the ones that worked. Uh, learn from our mistakes. And as we accumulate that knowledge, then we chip away at 
constant scourges of the human condition, like pestilence, like famine, like war. So things have been improving. We credit the Enlightenment. All this time, as things have been improving, we don't credit the improvement. You have so many quotes from the past about how little we look around and say things have gotten better. This is not just a current affliction. Even as things were improving dramatically 100 years ago or 150 years ago, we slough them off. That's right. It's ne- it's rarely cool to point out human progress. It sounds complacent. It sounds Pollyanna-ish. Newspaper editors say that's not real news. That's advertising. And it's got real consequences if we take for granted these improvements. For one thing, it makes us too quick to watch our institutions be hollowed out and denigrated. It opens the door for demagogues to say uh, it's an outrage that we're not living in a perfect society mm-hmm. and only I can can fix it. it. It leads people to undervalue some of the specific institutions that deserve credit for progress we've enjoyed, such as institutions of international cooperation like the United Nations, which for all of its follies and um, bad theater has played a, an enormously positive role right. in, the, uh, in the expansion of peace. Likewise, organizations that foster international trade, uh, likewise, environmental protection uh, agencies and clean air acts, legislation that is not given the credit it deserves for actually reducing levels of air and water pollution while at the same time allowing for economic growth. Right. So the most common thing you'll hear about something like the EPA is preceded by a phrase, well, these bureaucrats in Washington, but my God, these bureaucrats in Washington have improved our lives. Yeah. So we can see the sky. We don't have purple haze uh, smothering Los Angeles most days of the the, uh, year. But then, you know, Jimi Hendrix uh, inspiration (laughs) fades into oblivion. Oh, and, and beyond that, there are famous innovations that have become punchlines, like the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which is only used to laugh at the idea of, ha we once banned war. But it was actually a very good idea, and that pact maybe didn't work in the specific. But in general, war is being seen as less of a, a viable option among forward-looking countries. And maybe the Kellogg-Briand Pact was part of that. Yes, it is something of a laughing stock. That's what it was taught to me when I was in high school. This right. was the pact that allegedly outlawed war in 1928. And there was this you know, little blip called World War II in between. Uh, on the other hand, the legal scholars Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro point out that all laws are violated, sometimes flagrantly. Our laws against murder are obviously violated. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a reason to do without laws against murder. We're having the exact parallel discussion with why have laws against guns. Precisely. <laughs> the exact discussion. <laughs> exactly. And uh, what, what Hathaway and Shapiro pointed out is that the uh, outlawry of war really only gained teeth with the formation of the United Nations in 1945. And since then, uh, hard as it may be to believe, it really has changed the course of world history because prior to that, war was perfectly legitimate. If one country had, was, was slow in some debt payments, then the, uh, the, the, the creditor nation could invade it and ch- take a chunk of territory to Uh, compensate, and it would be recognized by the world community. And that doesn't happen anymore. It's not that there are no annexations, as we saw with Russia and Crimea, but uh, they counted them up, and they noted that there was uh, the equivalent of a Crimea-size annexation every year for hundreds of years, or uh, even, even greater. Territory would change hands, countries would be wiped off the map, borders moved back and forth. Then that all froze in, uh, in 1945. There have been very few conquests. No states have gone out of existence. And not in a straight line, but in a kind of downward roller coaster, the number and rate of death and wars have uh, gone down. But Professor Pinker, I want to go back to a couple of your theses. One, since the Enlightenment, things have improved. 
Two, as we just said, since the Enlightenment, against the backdrop of improvement, is not crediting the improvement. So why now write a book where you think it's important that we give credit to the improvement? Isn't not crediting the improvement one of the fuels for things improving? I would say no. Certainly recognizing problems is essential to solving them. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we can't uh, assume that we've reached utopia, and we never will reach utopia, and it would be dangerous to try to reach utopia. There will always be problems. That's guaranteed by the fact that the laws of the universe don't care about us. Yeah. Things fall apart. Things go wrong. We're, we're human. We're always going to be human. We're going to um, squabble and uh, get on each other's nerves. But it's important to to recognize the progress that, that has occurred. First of all, to embolden us to strive for more rather than throwing up our hands and saying, well, the human condition is a, a veil of tears. We're uh, saddled with tragedy. It's utopian to even try to improve our lot, to reduce the rate of war, to bring down the rate of crime. These are intractable problems. But when you realize they're not intractable, it does embolden you to look for solutions. Also, it means that we don't take for granted some of the institutions that are in place that, however flawed they are, they're better than the the alternative. Uh, I agree with large parts of that. I mean, if if in general, the argument is, hey, let's recognize the world as it is, not the world as it is, and I'm for accuracy. But I think about, say, the black experience in America, and I know of very few public intellectuals today who generally say, Look, our people, I'm talking about black intellectuals, our people are really improving and things are a lot better, but there's still a little ways to go. I mean, in general, they agitate for change on the basis of not just look at how far we've come since slavery, but more like, oh, my God, look at the gap between black Americans and white Americans. I would even think Barack Obama, who was always careful, but maybe because he had to appeal to a white majority electorate, always careful to say If you want to know how bad things were, talk to, you know, a black man from the South who's 90 years old or we're a aircraft carrier and all we could do is gently nudge the aircraft carrier towards progress. But even he, I think, in his gut and he showed at times, thought that the animating principle was not basically, look, we we're doing pretty well. The animating principle is, my God, we have so far to go. And that's a motivation, too. Uh, It is, although Obama, he did have a mindset that's overlaps a lot with uh, Enlightenment now, mm-hmm. in that he would point to, and I know this for a fact because I consulted with his speechwriters. Yeah. Uh, they, they asked me for some data and I, I made some suggestions, but that was very much part of his theme, that if you were to quantify human well-being, that's when when you see progress that would escape you if you uh, looked only at the, the news. And by the way, and Clinton as well, at least when he was out of office, had a great line that I, I thoroughly intend to steal, follow the trend lines, not the headlines. Yeah. So it is a way of thinking that these optimistic politicians can co-opt, and it is data-driven. It isn't just putting on a sunny face or, or looking at the bright side. I was thinking, so, so there's so many things that have gotten better, and literally no person today who has to do laundry is like, wow, things are so much better than when I had to beat this or when my great-grandmother was beating these clothes against a rock. So I was trying to think, of what are the things, what are the areas where there has been progress and we don't just curse the downside of it? And what I was thinking, the things I thought of are culinary. I think that there's a lot of progress with the kinds of foods we eat. And I do think people say, this is so much better than I was a kid. And isn't this amazing? And even like I do Blue Apron, getting a meal box shipped. There is a crediting of the progress in that area. I yeah, was you, thinking, can go out yeah. to, you can go out for, for Thai food. Uh, yeah. That was not a concept yeah. before the 1980s. Yeah, it's, every, uh. it's, it's like such a common cuisine. I think people love their cars. 
I, I, I yeah. mean, we've they don't uh, I mean, they, they they don't stall the way. I mean, in my generation, when you right. part of driver's ed was you learned how to take the lid off the air filter, stick a sunglass case into oh, you the did, carburetor. Yeah, I did a stick. I had yeah, a right. stick. In my, right. And yeah. so I was just trying to think: what are the areas? Are they are they kind of personal things where we do you know, we give should, credit we, to progress? You're really not enough. So I'll just give you another example. Let's say you're a cinemaphile. You know, when I was in college, if you wanted, to, you read about this great film, The Seventh Seal. Yeah. When do you get to see it? Well, you know, maybe in a, in in three years. It'll be shown at a local repertory theater on a Thursday night or maybe on late night TV in, in uh, black and white. Now you want to see The Seventh Seal, you download it and you're, you're watching it. Yeah. So on for the, this massive trove of, uh, of human culture. That's another example. Yes, but even you know, po- that's a double-edged sword too because, yes, you can watch any movie, but you know what else you have? Every movie at your fingertips. It's the paradox of choice and we become less happy with too many choices. Yeah, t- talk about a first world problem. Steven Pinker is the author of Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. In a political development, both surprising and expected, both potentially earth-shaking and de rigueur, both upsetting and understandable, California Democrats have rejected Dianne Feinstein as their Senate nominee. Whoa, whoa, what? Yeah, a little bit of context here. There was a convention over the weekend, and to be the official Democratic nominee, to be the one who gets that check mark on the ballot... You needed 60% of the vote, and Feinstein didn't get there. In fact, she came in a distant second place. State Senate leader Kevin DeLeon got 54% of the vote, and Feinstein only 37 So what does that mean? Well, according to the LA Times, California Democrat snub of party icon Dianne Feinstein could be a speed bump or a signal. A speed bump or a signal. Or maybe a signal before a speed bump like speed bump ahead. Or if the signal were a yellow light, it means slow down, which is pretty much the visual equivalent of a speed bump. So what I'm saying is I'm a little nonplussed. Here's the deal in practical political terms. Feinstein will probably get reelected for a fifth term. The ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, former chair of the Intel Committee, is now 85 years old, but she has a ton of cash. She has name recognition, and she has been serving in office since the 70s. But liberal activists who make up the Democratic Party are kind of sick of her, and I think that's a little bit sad. Their first bill of particulars against Feinstein is that 25 years ago, she had some imperfect votes. She voted for the Clinton crime bill, which in real life was a signature bipartisan piece of legislation that addressed an extremely anxious public's worry about crime. Let me make an analogy to today. The public is extremely anxious about school shooters. Today, the government is not addressing it. I think we can all agree that is dysfunctional. Back in 1994, the government did address it, and that was functional. But now, today, when we look back, since a consequence of that crime bill was building more prisons, that bill is seen as a progenitor of mass incarceration. So if you were among the vast majority of legislators addressing the concerns of your electorate, like a legislator is supposed to do in 1984, you did a good job, but today you're kind of a racist. Look, 
Now, I'm not I'm not being even handed. I will admit that. But I do believe pretty much in what, what I just said and how I just said it. Now, Feinstein's part of the crime bill back in 1994 was to vote for it. But also she was the author of the assault weapons ban. Why? Why has she, in fact, been a leading voice on gun control for these last five decades? It's because of how she became mayor of San Francisco. It was when then mayor George Moscone and supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated. It took me about six years into my mayorality to be able to sit in the chair where George Moscone was sitting when he was shot and killed. Um, as many of you know, I was the one that found Harvey's body and tried to get a pulse and put my finger into a bullet hole when he tried to shield himself. Feinstein also escaped an assassination attempt specifically against her via bomb. And beyond becoming a highly successful mayor and then one of the most powerful senators, you know, without her, we might not have ever had a full accounting of Abu Ghraib. She lays claim to the following distinction. I think you can make the case that Dianne Feinstein is the most powerful woman in U.S. history. Maybe it's Nancy Pelosi. Maybe it's Eleanor Roosevelt. Maybe it's one of our female Supreme Court justices. But a powerful senator with lots of tenure from the largest state who's got a lot done. Most powerful woman ever in American history might just be Dianne Feinstein. But what have you done for me lately, the voters of California say, or at least the Democrats do? And that's fair. That's a fair question. You know, she is more moderate on a lot of policies than they are. What is not fair is what they're most upset about. The clip I just played where she was asked uh, by an audience member at a talk about uh, becoming mayor after the assassinations, that was from a Commonwealth Club of California discussion. And in that talk, she answered this question, which was put to her from the moderator, former Representative Ellen Tauscher. Someone in the crowd asked it, and here is the question. At what point do you think the Republican leaders will definitively turn against President Trump? <laughs> They're a little late by my watch. Criticize him publicly and urge his resignation or impeachment. Well, so before we hear Feinstein's answer, realize this. Dianne Feinstein is an important voice on the Intel Committee and the Judiciary Committee. And both are looking at aspects of Russian meddling and the firing of James Comey. The question was asked last August. It would be senatorial malpractice to tip one's hand about impeachment if you are in Dianne Feinstein's position or to come out guns blazing before the evidence is in. You would never do that if you were in Dianne Feinstein's position. But Dianne Feinstein is in Dianne Feinstein's position. And this is what Dianne Feinstein said. I will play the whole response. It goes on for about a minute. Um, I'd really rather not comment. <laughs> However, I think, um, you know, you all know impeachment, and the House brings the impeachment, and then the Senate sits as a court and votes. At the end, it's a, there's a trial in front of the Senate, and um, kind of been there, done that. It's not... Yeah, we've both done that. Not the greatest thing in the world, that's for sure. Um, look... This man is going to be president, most likely for the rest of this term. I just hope he has the ability to learn and to change 
And if he does, he can be a good president. And that's my hope. Um, I have my own personal feelings about it. Yeah, I understand how you feel. I understand how you feel. Many liberal activists in California did not understand. Next day's headline, Senator Dianne Feinstein booed at San Francisco event. That was a Mercury News. San Diego Union Tribune, California Senator Dianne Feinstein, quote, Donald Trump can be a good president. The remark hung around her neck like an albatross. She, elsewhere in the event, laid out vivid criticism of the president's policies on Korea, immigration, global warming. And she also said, you know, compromise is not a dirty word. It's how we get things done. But clearly, that is not the mood of California voters, or at least those who voted in the Democratic State Party convention. It would be worrisome and troubling if ideological purity were a demand of Democrats, like it is Republicans. Right now, you can look at the Senate seats occupied by Democrats in states like Colorado, Indiana, Delaware, and Nevada. And you could say, you know, those very plausibly could all be occupied by Republicans, except for ideological purity tests in primaries. On the other hand, it's not going to happen in California. They have an open primary. So how it works is the top two vote getters from any party will appear on the November ballot. And those names could very well be Feinstein and DeLeon. And if that happens, and if Feinstein wins, she'll have threaded the needle between responsible governance and rousing campaigning. And I think everyone will be a little bit better off. Liberals will have sent a message. They will have felt heard in a democracy. And this lioness of the Senate will know that there is a robust wing of her constituency who will not let her tack to the center. And there's even a scenario I have heard laid out where not having a Republican on the Senate ballot will hurt Republicans in House races, and that could help Democrats overall. Or it could all be a huge disaster with some charismatic Republican stepping in and winning what was once thought of as a safe Senate seat. Who knows? And that is the state of politics in 2018, where one intemperate sentence in 2017, if it relates to Donald Trump, can counter 40 years of public service. And that's it for today's show. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the bay, a tender-hearted woman saw just producer Pierre Bienname. His hair reflected coiffure. Was he a jeller or a mooser? It was no matter to that tender woman. Mary Wilson, just senior producer. Take me in, oh tender woman, take me in or else I'll sigh. Either you or executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Steve Lichtai. She wrapped him up all cozy in a sleeping bag of mist and then laid him by the fireside and said the words, the gist. Then Pierre did bite the other staffers and said, that's what BNMAs will do. And with an evil cackle intoned, umpuru depuru dupuru. The snake! Snake bad! Ooh! Ah.